0: grab one of these just real quick. For those of you that uh, like these, I've, I know not everybody's a fan of the fill-in-the-blank things. You guys will live. You don't have to fill them out. For those of you that are fan, I got them today. The printer worked. Everything worked out this morning. It was great. just love it. Uh, but just real quickly, there's a couple of things in the front I want to just review from last week. Kind of the definition that we're using as we talk about worship and 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 form our ideas and understandings about it comes from Harold Best. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. Harold Best doesn't confine worship to the idea of whether or not believers or unbelievers can or can't worship the fact is his perspective and the one that i hope that you'll gain in in our lessons about worship is that everyone worships something we all worship something and then from a, as a review from last week all sin is a result of misplaced worship we don't just have sin problems we have worship problems um and then through the gospel god is reestablishing god-centered worship the gospel exists because worship doesn't people didn't worship god Or I'm sorry, not that worship doesn't, but God-centered worship doesn't. People didn't worship God. They worshiped lesser things. And so God comes and brings the gospel to reorder and reestablish a right worship. We worship God as a result of the gospel, and we worship God in response to the gospel. And that's really just to kind of build a a foundation for us as we continue on, because the reality is, is that today is a continuation from last week. I want to start with a story today. There was a woman. She wasn't especially respected by her peers. She wasn't appreciated by men. She didn't live an especially moral life. She didn't have all of the comforts of life that we do. Life was difficult for her. Maybe, maybe more difficult than we might think or imagine. But honestly, it's probably really no more difficult than we than the things we all face, just different. The struggles that she had may be different, but we all have struggles. The things that she faced may be different, but we all face issues in life. And one day, as she was working through her daily chores, though, something happened that would change her life from that day forward. And she walked from her village to the well from which she drew water every day. She didn't go when everyone else was there because people didn't want to be with her. She lived in shame. But on this fateful day, Jesus was there. He met her. Had a really divine appointment. There was something he had come to do. We're going to pick that story up in John chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews, have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, you guys probably all know the story or have read the story. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty popular. It's it's probably something that we've all read and 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 heard and heard preached on and heard perspectives on. And I'm just going to ask you to listen closely today as we walk our way through this. Jesus was breaking every social barrier as he approached this woman as he spoke to her. Men didn't speak to women. Like they do, it's normal for me to walk up to a woman in the hallway and say, hey, how are you doing? And, and talk about their day. That's, that's not too out of the ordinary. However, if I began meeting a woman at, at a restaurant, you know, it might be thought weird of. People might start thinking things. There all kinds of rumors would start. The, the idea was that they, they drew back from that totally. They just didn't talk to women and men didn't, talk to, men didn't talk to women and women didn't talk to men. It wasn't normal. It was a social barrier. But also it it says specifically that Jews didn't have dealings with Samaritans. It wasn't even normal for Jesus to be in Samaria as a Jew. Jews wouldn't go into the region of the Samaria. They they disliked, they despised the Samaritans. And so instead of going through Samaria, they would go around it to get to the other side of it because they so despised them. So just the very fact that Jesus was there was out of the ordinary. It was breaking through a, a social barrier, but this is what Jesus is all about. This is what Jesus does. See, he didn't come to save one race of people, but a people from all races. Think about that. There's there's a distinct difference. He didn't come to save one race of people, but a people from all races, a people from all socioeconomic divisions. He didn't just come to save men. He came to save men and women. He didn't just come to save rich people and, and, and forget about poor people or come to save just poor people. He came to save all people at every financial... Not all people. He came to save a people from every financial level. He didn't come to just save a people... From one race or from one division or from one gender, He came to save a people across the board. So He breaks the social barrier and He begins to speak with her. He asks for a drink. And Jesus, in response to the woman, says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. What Jesus is about to do, I mean, he's, he's doing it in this statement. He's taking this normal, everyday conversation, and he's turning it into something that has a spiritual significance. He, he's turning something that's, hey, give me a, give me a drink of water. That, I mean, we could say that to anybody, and he's about to turn it, and he's about to have this conversation. He has a point to make, and he has a—he has chosen this woman specifically. He's there to share it with this woman. This is a providential happening. This is a providential circumstance. God didn't just decide. Well, she showed up, so I'm gonna—he knew she was going to be there. God shows up. Jesus is there, and he's beginning to have this spiritual conversation. He begins by doing something that most of us just—we wouldn't do. When I don't walk up to anybody and say, well, you don't know what you're thinking or what your, what your perspectives are. I, I don't approach people and begin talking to them about their ignorance. That's just not something that happens in our culture. That's exactly where Jesus starts with her. He talks to her about, yeah, give me a drink of water. But hey, you don't know the gift that I have. But if you had, you'd ask for it. And he begins there to not to demean her or not to cause her more shame, but it's his launching point. It's his point from which he's going to begin to teach and direct her to the truth. Well, the woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, the woman's not totally ignorant. Obviously, she knows some things. She just doesn't necessarily know all that Jesus is going to teach her, and she needs to be taught. But she recognizes that he's not talking about the same water that she could draw from the well. She recognizes that even with her her, uh, tools to draw water from the well, she can't get to living water. See, living water, in, in that day and age, living water was a phrase that was common. It referred to water that was actually moving. It was referring to water that was, that was either moving like in a stream or a brook, or in times of, in reference to a well, it would talk about a well that's like spring fed and the water bubbles up from the ground so that it's actually circulating, it's moving. That's the phrase living water. So Jesus uses this phrase, meaning something totally different, but she understands from her own dialect, from her own language, from the, their, their, own, um, the, their own terminology. And she's like, she's she's getting it. She's like, well, wait a second. How are you going to get to the living water? You see, this well that she was at, Jacob dug the well. It was about 100 feet deep is what most people say. And at the bottom of the well, there was a spring that fed the well. It wasn't collecting water. It wasn't collecting mountain runoff. It, it was a spring-fed well. And at the bottom, the water was circulating. And this woman is, is looking into this well that's 100 feet deep, and maybe the water was, was 50 feet down, you know. How in the world are you going to get to this living water? Are you greater? I mean, she's astonished. She's, she's kind of amazed. Are, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? You don't have anything here with you. Where are you going to get this water? She, she knows that Jesus is talking about something different, but she can't see it all. She can't see everything that He's saying. She needs to be taught. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This is verse 13 verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's really actually kind of funny. This morning we come in and Heather is setting up for John and Andrea because they're gone. and She's walking out as I'm coming in the building. I'm like, where are you going? She's I'm going to go get some clean water. I was like, really? What's wrong? And the water, she said, is like, it's Yellow. I mean, well, I walked in and I, was, I thought, I am not about to have any of that water. I wouldn't want anybody to drink that water. It came out of the faucet here. It was nasty. It was dirty. Well, we definitely know that that's not a water we want to drink to quench any thirst. Nobody, if you guys, if we had left it there for you, you might have thought it was lemonade until you tasted it and there was no lemon. That's how nasty it was. That water is not going to quench our thirst because we're not going to touch it. But even the purified water that she went and she got and poured into the, to the container so that, so that we could have water this morning to drink, you can drink it now and after service you're, you're still going to be thirsty. Even the water that came from this well that was dug by Jacob, this woman could have drank that water. She's going to be thirsty again. In fact, that's why they had to go to the well every day. Because no matter what they did, That water would leave them thirsting. Here, Jesus is telling her about this living water. This living water isn't just the water at the bottom of the well. This living water is special. There's something different about it. Because anyone who drinks from it is never going to thirst again. But it's going to bubble up inside of them. It's going to be the spring that bubbles up inside of them that gives refreshing. In fact, this well, or this living water, I'm sorry, this living water... Makes the people who receive it more like the well than the people who come to the well to get water. You see, the well didn't have to wait for the spring runoff to fill up. The the well wasn't dependent upon rain to fill up. The well was always full because it was being fed by a spring and that spring was bubbling up inside of it, making sure that it always held water and it was always there and wet and everyone went to it because they were dry but this water that Jesus is talking about it brings us to this place that we will never need water again and, you know we have this perspective that we can look back we can see through the through the lens of history that that, that Jesus isn't referring to real physical literal water what he's talking about is the gospel The gospel, it's the gift that Jesus brought to us. The gospel is a spring that brings lasting satisfaction. And it bubbles up inside of us so that we are never dry again. So much of our life is turned around. We come to church to get water from the well. We go, we we look to a midweek Opportunity to be with church people so that we can go to the well and get water. But the gospel is what Jesus uses to to bring himself to us and fill us in such a way that we're we're carrying the water. The source is within us. The the source is given to us. It's, It's this gift that leaves us totally satisfied. You see, we shouldn't be waiting to be filled up when we come into the church. We shouldn't be waiting to be filled up in the middle of the week when we gather with our brothers and sisters at community group. It shouldn't be that the prayer meeting is what does it. Now, I don't, don't hear me wrong. I know that these times together are special. But they are never the source of our satisfaction. They're never the source of... Or what provides us this this quenching of our spiritual thirst? The gospel brings that satisfaction. It bubbles up inside of us and never leaves us dry. Well, the woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I mean, really, is there another response? Is, Is there any other response? I want this water. I'll never have to come back to the well. I'll never be thirsty. Is there any other response? There's not another response. I mean, she'd be foolish to hear of a water that could satisfy her forever and walk away from it. It would be like being told that, that Walmart is, you know, in, in the beginning days of Walmart, that, hey, if you buy stock now, you're going to be a millionaire in 10 years. Nobody would have expected what what happened with Walmart, but you'd have been foolish if you had all the insight and all the knowledge and all the wisdom and you turned away and walked away from it. That would be stupid, right? We would have all bought stock if we'd have had the opportunity and had the knowledge. We'd have just done it because, hey, it's going to make us a lot of money. This woman would have been an idiot to turn around. She's no idiot. She may not have all the knowledge that she needs, but she's not stupid. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Now Jesus kind of he kinda changes direction here. He's told her about this living water. And he says, she says, Well, I want it, give it to me. I I want this. She's still not understanding what she's asking for. So I think Jesus sets off to sets the the conversation in a direction that lets her know that he's going to continue to teach her. So he does something that again, most of us wouldn't do, we wouldn't even really have the capability to do without really knowing her at all. He lays out for her some of the most shameful things that have ever, she's ever experienced. She is a woman who has had five husbands, even in our culture where divorce is rather normal. What do you think of a woman that has had five husbands? I mean, oh, don't be judging. Uh, but she did it already. We all do, we've got this idea in our minds. I'm saying I think she was looked down on. I think she lived in a culture when, uh, first off, maybe maybe she was a widow five times. Maybe. But, man, what kind of rumors are going around then? I think she's killing them. I don't know if that's true or not. (laughs) Could be. But now the man she's with, the man she's living with, (laughs) she's not married to him. So even if, they, even if she had been a widow five times, she's shacking up with this guy now. And I'm going to tell you, in this culture, this is not something they would have been proud of. And it's not something they would have celebrated. The most legalistic people you ever meet are people outside the church. They definitely would have held this against her. Well, she does what probably is the most obvious. I mean, she comes back with this obvious statement. In fact, um, you know, John Madden gets made fun of for making obvious statements in football. You know, he's Mr. Obvious. Oh, well, if the quarterback will throw the ball to the receiver and the receiver happens to be in the, in the end zone, then you know what? That's a touchdown. Really? I mean, even the people that don't know about football in here know that's a touchdown. You might have called it, you know, uh, I don't know what you, what you might have called You might have called it any number of things, but at least you'd have known that's the way that you score. So John Madden, you know, he's known for that. Well, that's what this woman does. She makes the, the most obvious John Madden statement ever. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You just, yeah, I've never met you. I don't know anything about you. And you just, you just told me about myself. You just told me the things that I don't want anybody else to know. And so what she sets out to do in his next statement is change the subject. And some people automatically go negative and think, oh, she just doesn't want to talk about that. So she tries to divert Jesus. She wants to talk about something different. Well, it's possible. She just realized this guy's a prophet. She knows her own shame. She may have been wondering what... She, she may have been desiring to know what it is to worship God. This may have been her true desire in her heart. We don't, we don't have any way of knowing. And so to speculate, that's wrong of us. We don't know. The Bible doesn't teach us that, doesn't tell us that. So we just need to leave it. The fact is, is that she does. She does take the conversation now from living water, from Jesus confronting her in her her sin, and she begins to talk about worship. And she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Talking to her about her ignorance, we worship what we know. The Samaritans had had the five books of law, and that's it. That's all they had. They had the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. They had an incomplete revelation. The the the, the Jews they had it all. They, they, had, they had the prophets, they had the Psalms, they had, they had the, uh, the law, they had, they had it all. They, they, they had everything. In fact, even without the New Testament, they had enough to see Jesus was coming. They had the information. In fact, when Paul went into cities and began to preach the gospel, he preached from the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't even exist. They had enough to know the truth. He says you worship what you do not know. It's ignorance. And, and don't hear that word as being negative. That, that word is simply just r- revealing the truth. Ignorance is a lack of knowledge. Well, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And don't get it wrong, Jesus isn't saying that all that the Jews was, all that they did was right. I mean, Matthew 23 really shows that He did not approve of all that the Jews were doing. He, t- he calls them whitewashed tombs. He talks about them being dead inside. So don't don't mistake that. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And when this woman says this to Jesus, It betrays something about her in her ignorance, in her lack of knowledge. Our fathers say that you're supposed to worship on this mountain, but you say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Do you hear the perspective of of, of worship for her? It's bound up in the tradition of her fathers, in the tradition of her lineage, and it's bound up in a location. Her tradition would dictate the works that she was going to do. It would dictate the outward expression or action of worship. The location ties into that tradition, but it emphasizes the physical boundary, the physical, uh, the, the, the the physical realm of of worship. See, they didn't think they could worship anywhere else. And really, and truthfully, the Jews, oh, while well, they had some places that they would allow worship to take place outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holiest of places. The temple was the place for people to go to meet with God, to worship God. The thing is, is that attitude that she had, it's really not much different than the attitudes that we have today. Those of you that are parents and have had some time to, to raise your kids, especially kids of, of, uh, uh, that are like in their... Uh, early stages from between toddlers and being, you know, teenagers maybe, you're you're constantly teaching your kids to act a certain way, right? How many of you have taught your kids or were taught by your parents, that, hey, when you're at church, you don't act that way? And it's, it's okay if you do this outside of church, you know. If, if, as long as you're not in the church building, you can do this. Run around like a maniac and I, I don't even want to watch or pay attention to you, but if you're at church, you don't do that. Don't have any fun at church. Can't have a good time here. How many of us have, have, have either said or heard someone say, I, I know there's nobody here that would say this, but, but you know, you've certainly heard people say, oh, you're not supposed to say that in the church building. Or we would act in ways around our friends outside of church, but we wouldn't act that way at church. You see, we got this idea that when we come to this place, and and I know, here we are, we're meeting in a school, and so, oh man, it's not a church building, we can kind of get away with anything, right? Nope, I bet that's not true. I bet there's people that sit in here every week, and even especially when visitors come in, that have this idea about what church is, and there's things that they just would not do. Maybe not everybody, but certainly there's people that struggle with it. See, it betrays our understanding or our idea that we come to this place. It's a holy place and it's more holy and more worthy, uh, a worthy place to worship God than anywhere else we go. And last week we talked about the worship wars a little bit. You know what? That that shows us the the worship wars that try to determine what musical instruments could be played as a. As worship, or what songs could be worshipful to God or acceptable to God, as if one style of music is more acceptable to God than another. Like for example, you know, well, as long as it's contemporary Christian, and you can hear it on eighty-eight point three, that's a good worship song. But man, the second Lecrae starts rapping, oh no, that's not worship. I don't even listen to worship or rap that much, but I'm going to tell you, if you, if you, even if you don't like rap, listen to Lecrae. Go listen to him on YouTube. His lyrics are solid, and we're not going to rap here at church because, well, we don't have the soul to rap here at church. You know it. You know it's true, but we—it's just reality. But man, I'm going to tell you, his words are worshipful. Oh, you can't—you can't listen to to uh, hard rock music and, and be worshipful. There's plenty of guys out there that are worshiping God through the lyrics of their music and the instruments that He's given them, the abilities to play as they draw attention to His glory. We're really not much different even today than she was thousands of years ago tied up in the view of her traditions and the view of her physical perspectives of worship. Worship happens at church on Sunday morning between 10.30 and 11.00. In a certain way, with a certain number of songs, and we've got to be standing and not sitting. We've got to we've got to play a certain style. And the truth is, is it goes on both sides. I mean, the truth is, is that you can swing to either side of this problem, and 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 you can say that only contemporary Christian that's played on eighty eight point three is worshipful, or you can swing to the other side and you can say, oh no, anything but eighty eight point three music is worshipful, but that stuff is just junk that's probably where we're more guilty because we swing oftentimes to the other side. Oh, we can worship anywhere. We say that all the time. We, we, we've talked about this before. It's part of, the, part of the makeup of who we are. We can worship anywhere. We swing to the point that we just don't worship anywhere. So the woman then says to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. Jesus has, has steered this conversation and He has brought this conversation to this place of spiritual nature. She's responding. She's like, even if she's trying to change the subject, she's responding with a question. Even if she didn't really want to know the answer, she's responding in such a way that Jesus continues to show her the truth. And the woman said to Him in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And this revelation is made to her. You're looking at the one that God was going to send. You're looking at the one that you've been waiting for. You're speaking with the one with the answers. I have the truth for you. I mean, imagine. Imagine that moment. A woman that has been riddled with shame now approached by the messiah and shown the truth she recognized that he had never been speaking about spiritual water or about literal water she had recognized that that there was something different about him and now she's realizing that she's looking at the the one that God had always planned to send, And this may be the culmination of what, 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 what happens in this passage. This revelation teaches us and gives us a point by which we can build the identity of Jesus. But I think the point that Jesus was trying to drive home with her is that our lives are really to be about worship, but not just any worship, but right worship. Baker's New Testament commentary says the real topic of this passage is not the salvation of this soul, this woman, nor even the salvation of many souls in the province of Samaria, but rather the manner in which by means of this work, sending Jesus Christ, giving us the gospel, in which by means of this work, the glory of God in Christ is made manifest This passage is about God establishing right and acceptable worship through the gospel. This passage is is demonstrating to us what it is to worship in an acceptable manner. To worship our God in an acceptable manner. Just like from Romans last week, we we saw Paul teaching all the way through Romans. I I can show you, and, and, and we saw it last week, all the way through Romans, God is using the gospel to reestablish the priority of worship. And Jesus is demonstrating the same thing to this woman through the gospel, through Him. He's setting worship back in order. Worship was never intended to be about a tradition or a location. Not that at times... Don't hear me saying things that... that, that don't, Don't put words in my mouth. Not that at times. That tradition and location aren't important. We need a place to meet. We, we need to gather together to corporately worship our God. We need a location. But it's not bound by the walls of this building. It, it's not the traditions. Not, we, we have sung songs through probably anybody that grew up in church. You've always sung songs as a part of your worship. The church has traditionally sung songs as a part of their worship. We need to do that. It's good for us. In fact, I'll show you a passage later today that, that shows that there's something we should do. These traditions are good. It's a tradition to take communion. Don't hear me saying that we get rid of the tradition. We need the traditions. We need to remember the body, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We need to do it as often as we can. It reminds us that it's through this, through this work of Jesus Christ, through God's work and, and presentation of the Gospel, that worship is set back in order because of the because of the gospel, we worship God, but not just in any old way that feels good to us not not just in oh, just haphazardly, because of the gospel, we worship God rightly, we can worship God rightly as a result of the gospel, and in response to the gospel. Our lives can glorify him. And Jesus tells us at least two ways, I think we see three really, in which this happens. He says first that we worship God in spirit. I think this means that Christian worship is no longer bound by the physical. Now, this is interpreted in any number of ways, and I've studied it, and there's any number of people's interpretations. I'm going to give you three things I think that this means, and, and uh, I, I think we see it within the text. This isn't at all Jesus. It's not all that he means by it. It's not the only thing he means by it. But, but here he's saying this in response to a woman who has just tied worship to a physical place and to physical actions. And so I think Jesus is first setting up, setting up for her to let her know that it's not all about the physical. It doesn't just happen in our flesh. It doesn't just happen in the location we are. We're not bound by these physical trappings. Christian worship is no longer bound by that. And Christian worship is a characteristic of Christian identity. He says, God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit. He's telling us who God is. He's giving us an identity of who God is. He's telling us God is this. So we don't decide all of a sudden, well, God is a body. God is something else. He says God is this. He's telling us about God's identity. And he tells us about the identity of the person that should be worshiping God or that can worship God. And the only way that a person can worship God is in spirit. It's a part of our Christian identity, a part of who we are. Without this as, as a part of our identity, it's impossible for us to worship God. And if you look in the surrounding context, John had just written in John chapter 3 this, this story about Nicodemus coming and talking to Jesus and wanting eternal life. And he says to Jesus, hey, how can I get eternal life? How can I go to heaven? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, how's that going to happen? I'm a grown man. Can't go back where I came from. It's not going to work. And Jesus says to him, hey, what's born of the flesh is is flesh. What's born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, here's the truth about everyone who walks the face of the earth. And you've heard me say this before. But everybody that walks the face of the earth and is separated from Christ is spiritually dead. We are physically living but spiritually dead. We are dead men walking. That's it's the truth. That's what the Bible clearly demonstrates about who we are outside of Christ. Our spirits are dead. And they must be made alive by Jesus through the Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's called regeneration. For those of you that want a theological term to go with it, it's called regeneration. It's when the physically dead, or I'm sorry, the physically living, but spiritually dead person is given spiritual life when the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you alive. And all of a sudden, you have this new identity We also call it salvation, call it our means to eternal life. In terms of this story, it would be the water, the living water that we are given that bubbles up inside of us that makes us a well instead of a person that comes to the well. See, this is it. But apart from this work, apart from the Holy Spirit doing this, we can't worship God in spirit because we have no spirit to worship Him with or that will worship Him. See, until we're made alive spiritually, until we're given life for salvation, or until that living water is bubbling up inside of us, we are unable and unwilling to worship God. It's not so much a matter of choice. It's not so much that we're constantly thinking, I'm not going to worship God with this. It's, it's who we are. It's the result of our nature. We make choices and we live life based on our nature. Everybody, you know, in in, in Springfield, it's big to talk about free will. Oh, yeah, you have free will, but it's bound by your nature. So as a lost person, you know what you're going to choose? You're going to choose what lost people choose. And the Bible tells us lost people choose to reject God. No one seeks God. From us, death emanates. You know, death comes up out of our throats. That's what the Bible teaches And until God acts and regenerates, that's all the hope we have. That's all we can do. It's like we're bound up in a jail cell and all day long we can do push-ups in the jail cell. Or we can do sit-ups in the corner. Or we can maybe do pull-ups on the bar against the wall. But the reality is is that's all we can do is live in that jail cell. And Jesus Christ in the gospel comes and gives us this ability to, to come out of the jail cell. He gives us this life that brings us out of the cell. And then suddenly we are free. That's what Galatians is all about. Him making us free and then our wills are freed and our spirit is alive and it desires to worship Him. You see, it's not so much a matter of choice, but a matter of nature. We are unable and unwilling to worship God because our dead spirits want nothing to do with Him. But our spirit that's been made alive by the, by the Holy Spirit, its nature, its desire, is to honor and worship God. He gives us this life and enables us to worship Him rightly. Christian worship is influenced by God's Spirit. One of the most difficult things we deal with as Christians is still struggling against this carnal man or carnal woman that lives kind of alongside this living Spirit. We still have a sin nature that we struggle against and fight against. And so even as I stand here, even as I stand here and preach and desire to bring God great glory, there is a mixed motive that is fighting that I might be glorified, that I might get the pat on the back, that that it might change lives so that people think I'm a great preacher. I'd be lying if there wasn't. I'd be lying if I said there wasn't. The truth is, is that you are going to wrestle with those things too. The reasons that you come to church this morning may not really be to worship God. Maybe somewhere in the back of your mind. Hopefully it's more than in the back of your mind. But the reality is, is that there's a part of you that just wants to see your friends and hang out. And there's probably a part of you that wants to check off the task list that I went to church this week. I'm a good person. For those of you that serve in some way that you open up your homes or that, or that you um, come and set up on a Sunday or, 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 or you're in the band and you practice in the middle of the week or, 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 or whatever, whatever it is you might do. We struggle with these mixed motives. But see, Paul didn't just tell us in Galatians that we were made free to be free and that and that, that freedom is real. But he told us that now, as a free people, we are called and responsible to live under the influence of the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God who enables us, not only in the moment that He makes us alive, but in the steps of our life to worship God. It must be influenced by God's Spirit. Christian worship It's not bound by the physical. Christian worship is a characteristic of our identity. Christian worship is influenced by the Spirit. I think that this is what Jesus is referring to. I think that's what we see Him teaching. He makes another point. He says that you worship in Spirit and in truth. I think we see here that in this second point that Christian worship is offered to the true God. There's no such thing as Christian worship that is offered to some idol. You can call it worship because it's probably really worship, but you can't call it Christian worship. You can't call it something that it's not. Christian worship can only be offered to the one true God, the one who is worthy to be worshipped. It means we must know God as He's revealed Himself. You know, there's a big move in churches today, and it's kind of being turned around, and the the results of this are being seen. And there's there's a movement to turn around from this attitude. But there's a big movement. To walk away from doctrine and theology? Ah, you know, I don't really need to know those things. No, you do. You absolutely do need to know those things. You need to know who God's revealed Himself to be because the worst thing you can do is make an assumption about God and decide He's the way you want Him to be and then suddenly you know what you've done? You've created your own. That's dangerous. That's idolatry. That's not Christian worship. See, we need to understand doctrines and theologies. We need to study the Bible that we know God as He's revealed Himself. I mean, consider, if somebody's shouting at you across the room and they're saying, Hey, Sean, come here. Hey, Sean, Sean. And your name's Steve. You're not going to know to answer. You need to know one another, right? To be able to communicate, to be able to relate with one another. There's going to be an, uh, uh, an eclipse today. I don't know if you guys know this or not. 530 to 730, I think we're going to get to see a partial eclipse. And back in the day, because people had no knowledge of what was going on, they thought the gods were angry. They thought there was something bad happening. And so they worship things like sun gods and fire gods and and gods and uh, goddesses of all kinds of different things that controlled all kinds of different deals, you know, fertility gods and, and and all of this. But today, we have a new knowledge. We have a new understanding of what happens when this when, when an eclipse occurs. We know that simply the moon is moving in front of as, as as is normal, moving in front of the sun and it's causing the sun's shadow to fall on the earth. So we don't get scared and we don't start offering up sacrifices and chopping people's heads off to appease the sun God. Oh, don't take the light away. We'll try to be better. See, we know better. We need the knowledge. Not knowledge that we assume, not knowledge that we just heard once, but knowledge that comes from God's holy truth. The theologic, our theological perspective matters. It's not one that we devise on our own, but rather the one that God reveals about Himself. That matters. And Christian worship is offered up with a sincere heart. We're called hypocrites all the time, and the reality is that's true. I mean, we're hypocrites, but so is everybody else. So do not I'm not coming down on you. I don't want you to feel like I'm beating you up. We're hypocrites. Just own it and deal with it. Try not to be. But the reality is we are just like everybody else. But see, there's something that happens in us. I mean, this this is this is still part of that struggle. There's something that happens within us when our spirits are made alive. There truly is a nature, a part of us that desires sincerely to worship God. And if you if you have not been in church all your life, and maybe even if you have been in church, you you can still recognize this uh, just as clearly. There's a difference between a person who lives for themselves and puts on a show and tries to make people believe something about themselves, and somebody who inside their heart, inside the depths of who they are, they want their life to count and to glorify God. There's a difference. You see, I told you, I I shared with you, I, I struggle with a mixed motive. Even as I stand here and preach, I struggle with this motive to see myself exalted but I can tell you that that's not the only thing that's happening inside. There is a sincere part of me. There is a sincere part of me that wants nothing more than to shrink out of sight, to not be the focus of attention and to see God glorified. Every time I come, there's a sincere part of me that wants nothing more, not to just teach you, But to see you love Jesus, not to come and and give you an education, but change your hearts, to see your hearts change, that they want nothing more than to worship the great God who created us and the great God who saved us. That's my heart. And it struggles. I'm telling you, it struggles against the carnal part of me. It, It struggles. But the truth is that there's a sincerity, not because I'm a great person, but because the Spirit has made me alive. And every believer sitting in this room has that same spirit. And that same gift of life, that living water that bubbles up inside of them and fills them with, with this living water that they will never thirst again. This is not just mine. It's ours. It's a gift of God through the gospel. And the gospel, so so over and over and over, it's through the gospel that we are made able to worship God in an acceptable manner. It's through the Gospel, because of the Gospel, that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. We must worship in spirit because God is spirit. We must worship in truth because there is only one worthy to be worshipped. There is only one God who deserves it. And it must be offered up sincerely. You know, you can certainly worship God hypocritically, or you can certainly, I, don't, I won't say that, you can't worship God hypocritically. You can certainly glorify God with your life hypocritically. But that's because God is going to use your life for His glory regardless. But you can't call it an act of worship. The sad thing is, is that there, there's religious people that gather in our churches every week and they come and they sing the songs louder than anybody else and they clap their hands and they, and they make sure that people notice that they are doing everything they can to worship and everything they do is simply lifted up to exalt themselves. That's not worship in truth. See the beautiful... One of the most beautiful statements in this whole passage Jesus makes right at the end of this section, he says, these are the worshipers that God seeks. It's not like he's out looking for people who have figured out how to worship. It's about bringing his elect into this place and using the gospel to, to reorient their lives that they might turn their attention to him. You see, God desires our worship for his glory and for our joy. It's not, it's not a narcissistic God that sits above us and looks down and says, you have to worship me. And I don't care what, anything about you. See, God, God, He desires our worship not because He needs worship, but because He designed us to worship Him and He knows it's in our best interest. It's in your best interest to worship the true God. But I think there's one more point Jesus makes. He doesn't say it explicitly. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't immediately say it. But, but I think that we see that he is also talking about in spirit and in truth. I think we see him talking also about practice and that we are to worship in our practice. Now, now he, like I said, he doesn't necessarily, necessarily say it. But I think it's implied as he talks about spirit and truth, this, this underlying foundation or characteristic that builds in us this attitude of worship. It, it, this is the inner, inner workings of it. This is the attitude. And this attitude then leads to new motivation, and this new motivation leads to outward action. And so there becomes a practice of worship. It becomes it becomes outward. It's not bound to the physical. It starts in the spiritual and finds its way to the physical. It's not limited in any way to a location like the woman thought or a particular set of traditions like the woman thought. But instead now, everything we do, everything we do can be offered up as worship. For example, there are certain things that we're commanded not to do, that we're called not to do. We're we're, we're told we shouldn't be uh, engaging in sexual sin. We're told that we shouldn't be gluttons. We're told that we shouldn't be lying, we're cheating or stealing. Those are things we're told we shouldn't do. So obviously, you can't do those things to glorify God. It's not like you can go and say, oh, I stole these diamonds for the glory of God, and all of a sudden that's worship. But what you can do is not do those things to the glory of God. You see, we don't have to follow these commands and follow these laws to lift ourselves up. We we follow these commands. We follow these laws to the glory of God. We, we limit ourselves for God's glory. Oh, I could still be a believer and go murder somebody. I could get away with that. And I, well, you know, I, I'm saved. I really am a believer. And if that were true, I'd still end up in heaven. There's plenty of murders. There's going to be plenty of people who have done horrible things in heaven because it's not based on our works. But certainly can't say that that's worship. And you automatically begin to see that that sin precedes the sin of actual murder. Ah, you know what? I'm not worried about God's glory, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. Worship problems, not sin problems. So there are certain things we don't do to God's glory or can't do to God's glory, but we can certainly not do them for His glory. And all the things that we've been commanded to do. Oh, the things that you're commanded to do. You should love one another. You should forgive one another. You are to do these things. Pray continuously. All these commands that we're called to do, not, not do them for our own satisfaction or our own worthiness, but do them to God's glory. Not trying to gain our footing in front of God, but do them simply to demonstrate His great good and His great glory. And then there's all of these morally neutral things. For example, like money. That's a morally neutral thing. They're, they're, money by itself is not evil. It's how we look at it that makes it good or bad. It's morally neutral. Um, alcohol by itself is not, not evil by itself. It's how we look at it. Uh, there's certain things that just, you know, they're, they're, they're neither. But certainly we can use them in ways that glorify God rather than ourselves. We can use them for His glory rather than selfishly. Now last week I showed you about worship and how it how it will Kind of work alongside the the gospel rhythms that are established at the way that the the gospel rhythms are those things that just naturally come and And the the bible kind of just demonstrates happens as people are affected by the gospel And so we see people gathering in scripture We see them gathering corporately in large groups and just singing and praising god and being taught and listening to the teaching of the apostles And we and we see them gathering in smaller groups where they're Depending on one another and doing life together and celebrating the glory of god together and, and they're supporting one another And then we see them living life outside of the community of the church and so we're trying to define those things trying to give some some focus so that you kind of see them at work not only in your church but in your life and we call them gospel rhythms and then we talk about temple which is this corporate gathering we talk about table which is our community groups and we talk about um the town which is simply our life outside of the church these gospel rhythms that begin to flow because of the work of the gospel in us are worship rhythms They can be worship rhythms. Certainly you don't have to make them worship rhythms. Certainly you can go into them and make them all about yourself. But as we exist as a church and I, as the, as the pastor of this church, that is not what I want this church to be about. So I don't want you to come and be a part of this simply to see what you can get out of it. I'm so fed up with the consumeristic attitude that comes with our culture. This is not about you. It's not about me. It's it's not about us by ourselves. It's first and foremost about God's glory. But I only say that because in God's glory we find our greatest joy. You were designed to worship Him. You were meant to worship Him. It's part of the ingrained nature of your life. If this church is ever about anything but about His great glory, then we are missing the point and we have made an idol out of this gathering of people. These gospel rhythms can be worship rhythms and are intended to be worship rhythms. And as I told you last week, as we gather corporately, it's about God's glory. I don't even design a, a message with you first in mind. Except to say that I want it to, to, to strike you in a place where it builds in you an indwelling love for Jesus and desire to see Him exalted in your life. And when we take the Lord's Supper, when we sing the songs, the truth is that the worship doesn't even start when you walk in here. This morning when you were brushing your teeth, when you were combing your hair, when putting on your clothes, all of that is leading up and, becomes, and can become an act of worship. Because you're doing it all for God's glory. As we gather in our community groups, certainly I want you to build relationships. Certainly I want you to learn the Bible deeper. Certainly I want you to be able to serve on mission. Certainly I want you to know what it is to minister and serve one another, to, to minister and be ministered to. Certainly I want you to experience those things. But I want you to have in your mind that the reason you do it is for God's great glory, that underlying attitude as you worship in spirit and in truth. And when you get up and you go to work and you live outside of the community of the church, because much of our life is outside of the community of the church, it's not any different. I want you to change your mind about why you go to work. I don't want you to go to work to earn a paycheck anymore. Certainly, I want you to earn a paycheck. I want you to work hard. I want you to excel in your your craft. I want you to be seen by others, to be a good employee. I, I want those things for you. But not so that they pat you on the back but all offered up as an act of worship, Under all of it underridden and undergirded and founded on this attitude of worshiping God, all of this attitude resulting in this outward action. And there's so many things, all of the things. I'm convinced that you can sit down and eat an ice cream cone to the glory of God. You can sleep to the glory of God. You can do anything to His glory. And it can become an act of worship when given the right attitude, when given and done with the right intention. There are many practical ways, except for sin. Let me me make that qualification. You cannot intentionally sin and say it's for God's glory. But you can intentionally struggle against it and say it's for God's glory. There are many practical ways. And, And on the last page of your notes, and we need to stop. I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm not going to read all the verses. You've got them there. We can sing spiritual songs, teaching one another, hearing truth. We can live together in unity. We can live pure and holy lives. We can give generously to support God's mission. We can, give, um, or we can serve one another as God enables. And here's one maybe you don't think about often, but even the suffering of your life, the, the struggles and the problems you face every day can be given and just engaged in or, or dealt with in an attitude of worship this morning last Sunday morning i 'll even use my own uh, my, my own illustration or an illustration about myself last Sunday morning I wake up I, I sit down i 'm going to print these handouts out, and the printer doesn 't work i 'm frustrated, and my day wasn 't going well, even in that struggle. It can be done in such a way that it brings God glory and it can be offered up as an act of worship. This morning as we come in, the things were just going wrong and, and, and a wire broke and, and things weren't happening right. And, and as I listened to the band pray and I prayed with the band before the service, the, the prayer was offered up that, God, you are still God, even though as, as we lose control, as we deal with the struggles, as we have these problems, this enables us, even in the midst of suffering, even greater suffering than that can be offered up as an act of worship. Everything we do and don't do can and should be worshiped. Let's pray. Father, You are good, glorious, wonderful. Thank You so much for loving us the way that You have. I thank You, Father, for for looking on us Even, even in the midst of our own brokenness and sinfulness. You looked at us and You loved us. You gave Your Son for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, and You look at us and You look at our feeble attempts to do things. And You, for whatever reason, God, by by Your own choosing, You accept these things as worship. God, I know that there are many things many things represented in the hearts of the people in this room that are not worshipful to you. I, I, I know that there are many things that they lift up, that I lift up and exalt and and, and build my decisions around and we, we build our, our, our um, time and our talents and our treasure around and we think that in some way these things are going to give us the satisfaction and desires of our heart. We look, them to, look to them to fill us, God. and we'll, They become idols to us. God, I know that there's many things. I pray, God. I pray that you would just show those things to us, that we might turn from them, that we might repent, that we might worship you and you alone, God. That you would be. That you would be the object of our worship. That you alone would be the object of our worship. Father, help us, enable us, continue to show us what it is to worship in spirit and in truth that our practice might be pleasing to You, that our efforts might be a a sweet aroma to You. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.